Well, good morning, Fellowship Church. The Lord be with you. It is very good to gather with you this morning for worship, having been out scattered throughout this past week in town or beyond, to gather and kick off a new week doing this first thing together, worshiping. Glad to be gathered with you to do so. Our, our worship theme this morning is the great joy and sometimes the great challenge of life together in community. In fact, you can read a little bit about it on our New Testament postcards there as we are in the book of Corinthians, which has high highs and low lows in their life together. But we recognize that it is a great opportunity uh, to do life together. And uh, so as we gather this morning, we recognize that folks might be in this place with some anxieties, with some who are lonely, with some who are suffering or enduring some kind of pain. We recognize also that there might be folks who are here rejoicing, who have glad news to share or, or who are looking forward to something really, really good. And together we join together uh, to worship God in all of these circumstances, supporting one another along the way. I invite you to stand with me because there's a great psalm that's known for celebrating the joy of life together in community. It's Psalm 133, and we're going to say it together. The words are on the screen. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. It's a psalm about life together in community, and this song we're going to sing celebrates it as well. Let's worship God together. Sing together. See how good it is gathering with friends, welcoming the stranger in. See how good it is when God shares.
worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. Our God, he holds a victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. This past week, oh, there was an International Refugee Day, rec- recognizing that there's many displaced people in our world. And our denomination put a resource together on their FaithWord website uh, that was a prayer resource for congregations. And uh, I've adapted that prayer for our prayer this morning. It will conclude with the words of the Lord's Prayer, which you'll find on the screen. Let's pray together. O oh God, in whose image we are created, with all of our maleness and femaleness, regardless of our darkness or lightness. We thank you for the reminder today that you are a God of love, that through Jesus, we are reconciled with you and that in Jesus, we are called to be reconciled to, with one another. We pause this morning to remember that Jesus lived, died, rose and ascended, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And though we often settle for a concept of salvation that is merely philosophical or emotional, we see that Jesus and his earliest disciples did not, that they, alongside of proclaiming your grace and mercy, were bearers of healing and hope for those who suffered in mind, body, spirit, and circumstance. With that in mind, O God, we pray. 
for the millions of people who have been forced from their homes by extreme poverty, hunger, war, persecution, and even environmental degradation. For all the men and women and children afloat on the sea, uncertain whether they will ever touch land again, and for those this week who didn't make it to dry land. We pray for all who travel through areas that we only see as black lines on our maps and atlases, or for those that are trapped in modern-day slavery, forced to work in fields and on streets. And, oh God, we, we pray for those of us who are, lost, who are lost spiritually, immersed in the worship of anything but you, believing the lies that we are what we have, what we can do, or even what we look like, and at times looking to the little G gods to satisfy what can only come from you. We also pray for those who find themselves lost or trapped in emotional ways, confined to the de depressive thoughts that they can't escape or the anxiousness that hampers their ability to live. And especially for those whose loneliness begs them to wonder if anyone cares or if anyone will notice them gone. Redeeming Christ, you see us as your image bearers and worthy of relational connection with you. Help us to see our fellow humans and even our own selves as worthy of your love and grace, love and grace that has been embodied in Jesus Christ, the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's continue our time of worship and stand on our feet. Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And then though we are Christians by our love, by our love, yes, the Excellent job. Just Mix is out getting some well-deserved vacation right now. So friends, I invite you to hear this good news in our life together. It is because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we have peace with God and peace with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. 
would you take a moment and share a sign of that peace with one another? Good morning, Fellowship Church. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Nate. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you're new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're here. If you wanna make yourself known to us, we have some connection cards that can be filled out online or you can find them at the back of the sanctuary. So you might remember the uh, old uh, TV show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Come on, there's a few of us. And you remember that summertime song? It's like, summer, summer, summertime, time to sit back and unwind. And then, and then Will uh, Smith uh, jumps in with the line, here it is, the groove slightly transformed, a break from the norm. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's a break from the norm, my friends, and it's summertime. And this summer uh, at Fellowship, we had a few break from the norms in the past week and that we're looking forward to in the coming weeks. One is that we want to celebrate that the D's, come on, had a little bike camp this past week that uh, brought in a number of students that helped raise some money for some global mission experiences. And they have a little, uh, they had a great week, uh, nice and hot, sweaty, lots of kids running around, 20-ish kids in the morning, another 20-ish kids in the afternoon. And they have a little note from us uh, via video this morning. Come on, how cool is that? That was just one of the groups. We're grateful for the chance to have them around this, the, this summertime with a little break from the norm. The next two things are things that are coming up. A little break from the norm. One is that next week is a great chance, a holiday weekend to celebrate uh, together with one big service on July 2nd. So we are gonna have uh, one service at one time with all of the people of fellowship uh, at 9.30 in the morning. So if you come at your normal time, guess what? You will be coming after the service is over. Uh, so come a little bit early. We're asking you to wake up a little bit early for you second service folks, uh, but we're gonna do one service with uh, all of fellowship uh, next week on July 2nd. The second thing that is a little break from the norm this summertime is a cool thing that we're doing for the first time this summer on July 12th. And it's something we're calling the grill out and chill out. You might see it in the bulletin or behind me. It's a great opportunity to experience fellowship, uh, fellowship with one another, fellowship church, but uh, also fellowship with God, we pray. And we are asking uh, you, uh, or we're inviting you to come and you see a little card in your bulletin uh, that is a little notification for you about when it's happening, but more importantly and more, uh, uh, even more so, we're hoping that that's an invitation that you can pass out to someone else, that that is a way for you to invite a neighbor, a friend, someone uh, that doesn't know uh, a fellowship, uh, a place uh, like fellowship uh, that might be lo looking for an opportunity uh, to get to know some more people. Um, it's a part of our intention this year to, to raise or to invite up to 12,000 people uh, in the coming year to, to something at fellowship. And this is a great, in, highly invitational event. And we'd love for you to share uh, that card with someone that you know. In just a moment, you're gonna hear uh, the, the word of God from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Among the many things that uh, he talks about in those letters and Tierra is gonna help us out with that this morning is a note about giving to the Christian believers in Corinth. He says this in, in, the, in his first letter to the Corinthians. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a, a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. What I appreciate about what Paul is saying here is that he is longing that when he comes to see them, there won't be any need for a special appeal because they have already saved up enough money based on what has been allotted to them by God for the church, for the ministry of the church, both locally and globally. Thankfully, today, as we approach the end of our fiscal year as a congregation, June 30th is the end of our fiscal year, 
collectively, Fellowship Church has set aside enough to meet the expenses of our program year because of the faithful giving of so many people at Fellowship Church. If you'd like to take part uh, in the giving ministry of Fellowship Church, you can do that by uh, using the offering bowls at the back of the sanctuary or by giving online through our website. At this time, I'd like to invite all of the children in the place up front for a little children's message with uh, Betsy Bruins, our minister of children and uh, young families or something something like that. that. And I have snacks, kids, so come on down if you want a snack. Sit down, Pastor Nate, you bet. So kids, come on down here, have a seat. We've got lots of space, kids, lots of snacks. Come on down. There might be a few that are coming in from the atrium as well. Well, good morning, you guys. We just sang a song about, they'll know we are Christians by our love. God loves us so much. And because he loves us, he pours the love into our hearts. And we have so much love then, we can share it with other people. I want to talk a little bit about that with you. And then later, Pastor Tierra is going to even talk about it. So I have a snack that you're all going to get in a minute. And I want you to see what that shape looks like, the outside of the pretzel. What do you think that shape is? It's a heart. It's a heart. So when I was trying to figure out what can I feed the kids today, because we have a lot of VBS extra snacks, I thought this, uh, that's right, the truth of it. But, um, but I thought this would be a perfect snack because it's a heart. It reminds us of God's love. So when you get this snack, I want you to think of how we can get God's love into us, but how he wants us to share love with others. Let me tell you a story. I went to a place called Cranhill Ranch about four nights ago. And some of you have been there, right? And Pastor Nate's been there. It's a wonderful place, and it's only about two hours north. And you know what? At that camp, you can go camping, which is what I did with Mr. Bruins. We had a pop-up camper. But you also see campers that are there. So it's a lot like Camp Geneva, but it has horses and dust, and there's a lake. And all kinds of cool things. So if you like horses, you might want to go to Cranhill Ranch someday. But we went to the barn store. And at that place, which is kind of the hub of Cranhill Ranch, there were a bunch of counselors there. And they were loving up some of the campers. It was really neat. And some of these campers, I think, had been there for a few nights already. And I think some of them were a little sad I think some of the campers were a little bit lonely, maybe missing mom and dad, maybe missing their friends. Maybe they had gone to camp and they didn't go with really anyone they knew. So guess what? These counselors were loving on the campers. And those counselors didn't have to be there. They chose to be a camp counselor for their job, which is really cool. They could have been doing doing some other job or at the beach with friends or whatever. They chose to share the love of Jesus with other people. And that's what God asks us to do too. Now, for those of you who did VBS, remember our song about shine is light, shine is light for all the world to see. Every single day is another chance to shine Jesus' light. It's not about our light. It's about shining the light of God to others and showing others our love to other people if they're sad or lonely or need a friend or maybe they need a church home. So your parents are going to get one of these cards that's all about the summer party coming up on July 12. And it's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a bounce house, water games, pickleball for the adults, um, there's gonna be a balloon guy there, free ice cream from the Holland Department, Holland Police Department. It's gonna be a neat event. So I want you to take this and think of maybe some other person that you could invite that might wanna come to an event like that at our church. And maybe they'll feel a little less lonely that way, okay? So when you hear Pastor Tierra, some of you who are older will stay in the service. And Pastor Tierra is gonna talk about a man named Paul 
And he wrote to a big city and he gave them all kinds of news, but most of all, he told them about God's love and how the people in that city should keep sharing God's love with others, just like we need to share God's love even today, even now. Okay, can you remember that for me? And then those of you who are first grade and under get to come with me. You're all going to get a snack. But if you're first grade and under, then I'll meet you out in the atrium, okay? But everyone can stand up and get a snack. And everybody else can stand because we are going to sing a song right now. So the rest of you kids can come out in the hall with me. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather together as your people, those who are near, those who are far off, those who are strangers, those who are friends. We're so grateful to just have the chance to sing your praises and to pray together and to greet one another and to laugh with our children together um, and to turn toward the scriptures together. We pray that as we turn toward those scriptures this morning, as we study them together, that you would open our, um, open our eyes that we, might, um, that we might see, and that you would open our ears that we might hear, that you would open our minds that we might perceive, and that you would open our hands that we might love, like you, fervently, one another and those in our midst. Uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. <clears throat> Uh, my name is Tiara. If I have not yet met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. And if you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you're hopping back in after a couple weeks away, uh, we have uh, we are in the third week of a series that we've been calling Letters from Home. Uh, letters from Home. In the series, we've been exploring a number of the epistles or the letters of the New Testament, uh, letters written to the first followers of Jesus, uh, letters written in the first century. But even though they're written in the first century, letters that are timeless. Um, so much so that we're still reading them today because they're as relevant today as they were when they were first written. In this way, we're reading someone else's mail, but also our own. So today we're going to explore First and Second Corinthians. And even if you've never read First and Second Corinthians, uh, you've probably heard uh, something from that, um, that text, uh, particularly First Corinthians chapter 13, the most famous chapter in all of First and Second Corinthians, arguably one of the most beautiful passages or, or sections of writing ever written in any book at any time in any civilization. Uh, it's often read at weddings. Uh, some of you received wedding gifts with these words written on it. Some of you have Hobby Lobby trinkets in your house with these words written on them. Uh, Paul's chapter on love is one of the most well-known passages of the scriptures. And while familiarity with this passage can lead to maybe sometimes boredom, maybe even sometimes cynicism, uh, I think it's more relevant than ever. Uh, here's what I mean. 
a couple months ago, me and 11 other pastors uh, here in West Michigan were invited by the Colossian Forum to sit down with the mayor of Grand Rapids. And unfortunately, my schedule that day was slammed and I couldn't afford to drive an hour to GR do a meeting and then drive an hour back. And so I ended up missing it. Uh, nonetheless, one of the central questions guiding this gathering uh, with the mayor of GR was what can the church do to better serve uh, our city, to better serve our region in your estimation? Um, I think we were expecting the mayor of GR to say something like, oh, you know, what if you, uh, what if you get behind this cause? Or what if you advocate for this? Or what if you do this thing? And which, what, which is what made what she said to us that much more surprising because she looked at our group and she said to them, you know, churches always ask for service projects and those are great. Those are awesome. Keep doing those. Uh, but the best thing the church can do right now, the very best thing you can do is find the people who are alone and make time for them in your lives and space for them in your hearts. Why? Because the mayor of Grand Rapids has noticed, and perhaps you yourself have also noticed, that loneliness is at an all-time high. According to some research that's been done recently, uh, over the last several years, we, have, uh, we are less likely to have close friends to call in a crisis than we did several decades ago. Uh, we're less likely to have friends who truly know us well. Uh, we're less likely to spend time with friends and with loved ones who live outside of our home. And we're less likely even, and ironically, to engage with the people who live in our homes we're less likely to play with others. We're less likely to engage in conversations, substantive conversations with people that we know, choosing to, to stay right at the surface, uh, right at the surface level. And part of that is because we're less likely to trust our fellow Americans. We're less likely to even want to live near people who think differently than us. Apparently, we're not just lonely, we are alienated from one another. In his book, um, a couple years ago, uh, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, uh, former U.S. Senator Ben Sass says that our loneliness and our alienation is almost creating a vicious cycle within our culture. Our loneliness is driving our alienation from one another. And the result of our alienation is that we become lonelier. And then we begin to behave in ways that drive us further apart. What if Paul's letter to the church at Corinth wasn't just beautiful words to decorate our homes what if they're God's word for the church, not just in the first century, but even in our own time? And what if those very words of Paul help us to actually combat loneliness and isolation and alienation in our community and even within ourselves? So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, picking up in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it too will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man or an adult, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Near the end of his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul pens these beautiful, beautiful words. Uh, but why does Paul pen these words? Is Paul officiating a wedding at Corinth? Is he planting the first Hobby Lobby in Corinth? And will it be open on Sundays? Uh, if we <laughs> zoom out a bit, uh, we notice that Paul actually started the church at Corinth. Uh, in Acts 18, we read about this. Um, Paul spent something like a year and a half uh, debating in the synagogue um, and eventually starting a network of house churches there. 
Now, you might be wondering, uh, why did Paul go to Corinth in the first place? Uh, Well, that would be because Corinth is and was the center of everything. Uh, A couple of details about Corinth. Uh, Corinth was the capital city of the Achaia, the Achaia province. Corinth had been initially destroyed um, a couple hundred years earlier by the Romans. It was then refounded in 44 BC by Julius Caesar as a Roman colony. And uh, Julius Caesar filled it with freed slaves, uh, Roman veterans, urban artisans, tradespeople, and laborers. Uh, You kind of see that woven throughout the story and some of the conflicts that come up. Uh, He established a mini Roman government system in Corinth, which then became the seat of the Roman government for that region. in that way, Corinth was a little bit like Lansing, maybe a little bit more exciting, so maybe like more like Washington, D.C. Uh, no offense if you're from Lansing. Uh, <laughs> uh, politics brought tons of people to and through Corinth, and politics became a staple of Corinthian culture. But Corinth was also a center of commerce. Uh, you'll notice on the map um, that Corinth had two ports, not just one harbor, but two harbors, uh, which meant there were tons of merchants flowing in and out of the city all the time with goods traveling from into Asia, with goods traveling from into Italy. Uh, trade brought tons of people to uh, and through Corinth for business and for commerce, uh, and it became a staple of their culture. Uh, Thirdly, Corinth was a center of sports, tourism, and competition. Uh, The people who lived there regularly went to gladiatorial contests, uh, and people traveled to Corinth every other year for something called the Isthmian Games. If you go to that next map, um, you can see it a little bit more clearly. That little section in the middle of the the map or in the middle of the the, the water is called an Isthmus. That's where they hosted the Isthmian Games. Uh, These were one of the games that led up to the Olympics. Uh, And if you were wanting to participate in the Olympics, you had to participate in all these other games that took place every year. And these games were spaced out literally so the athletes would have a chance to compete in all of them. Now, at the Isthmian Games, there were traditional sports like foot races and long jump and chariot races and javelin throws. Uh, But also competitions for things that were none physically athletic but became a sport in themselves, like poetry or singing or public speaking. Uh, These competitions attracted tons of tourists to the area and became a staple of Corinthian culture. Lastly, or fourthly, uh, Corinth was also a center for pagan worship. Uh, There were shrines and temples to many of the ancient gods and goddesses there. Uh, For instance, Aphrodite, uh, the goddess of love, um, beauty, fertility, sexuality, uh, um, had a temple there. Um, Eventually, Aphrodite came to also be associated with prostitutes or temple prostitutes. Uh, Prostitutes saw Aphrodite as their patron goddess. Uh, Then there's Asclepius, uh, the god of health and healing. Uh, Now, Asclepius wasn't just known for physical, uh, physical healing. This slide isn't relevant yet. I'll come to it. So just hang in there. Just, yeah. (laughs) Uh, He wasn't just the God of physical health and healing, but also emotional health, uh, which is the reason why his temple complex was not only massive, uh, not only was it massive, but it was also, and so it had a place to worship, but also a gym, um, a spa, Uh, a theater, uh, a library, tree-lined gardens, and even a restaurant where people ate the most amazing meals in the city of Corinth. It was a little bit like a resort, a little bit like a country club. You want it to be there, and you want it to be seen there. The gods and the goddesses attracted tons of tourists uh, to the area looking to improve their health um, and looking to improve their lives and became a staple of Corinthian culture. Which is why if you're Paul, if you're opportunistic like Paul, you're thinking this is an ideal place to start a church and to share the gospel. Why? Because people are coming in and out and through the city all the time and they can carry it back with them to their homes. So Paul moves to Corinth uh, and he sets up shop in the marketplace as a tent maker. This next slide is uh, the Agora um, in ancient Corinth, um, the ruins of it rather. Uh, this is where people would set up shop um, and sell their goods and their wares. Paul, by trade, was a, a maker of leather tents, which kind of comes in handy when you're hosting the Isthmian Games. Tons of people need tents uh, for various reasons. And so Paul sets up shop there as a tent maker. Um, He meets some other tent makers named Priscilla and Aquila, a a wife and husband uh, who travel with him on mission. Uh, But as Paul eventually learns, uh, as he's debating in the synagogues, as he's getting to know people, as he's selling tents, as he's starting all these house churches, Paul eventually learns that the very things that make Corinth the center of everything 
also make Corinth one of the hardest places for people to learn how to love God and how to love others, how to love their neighbors, how to even love their enemies. Even a quick survey of 1st and 2nd Corinthians reveals that this is a church that is engulfed in conflicts. Indeed, these very conflicts are the reason Paul writes to them each time. The church in Corinth, we learn in 1 Corinthians 1, was in conflict over which leaders were uh, their favorites, dividing into factions over which speakers they thought were the most eloquent or spoke the most good. <laughs> Grammar joke? No? Okay. <laughs> uh, the church at Corinth was in conflict over sexual immorality, including um, one person who was sleeping with uh, his stepmother, it was just super awkward, Another other people who were uh, engaging with temple prostitutes. Uh, the church at Corinth was also in conflict over whether to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. Uh, the church at Corinth, uh, this is actually a, a shot of the... Um, of the temple to Asclepius, uh, where people were often um, um, eating food that was sacrificed to idols in the restaurant, which seems a little more commonplace when you think about it as a restaurant rather than as like a weird temple sacrifice situation. Uh, church at Corinth was also in conflict over how best to use their gifts and talents in the church um, and which gifts were the best gifts. They were even in competition over their gifts. The church at Corinth was in conflict over where to seat poor people during the Lord's Supper, and worse, whether to save food for the working poor who, got, who couldn't get out of work um, before the wealthier people arrived and feasted. The church at Corinth was in conflict over how to order their worship gatherings. And the church at Corinth was even in conflict over how to settle conflicts, and so they started to sue each other. Uh, and the church at conflict, lastly, was even in conflict, um, eventually in conflict with Paul himself, because he wasn't as eloquent a speaker as the super apostles who had descended upon their churches. The church at Corinth is embroiled in tons of conflicts, and the conflicts seem to be exacerbated by the habits and the values and the dispositions of their very culture. Now, disclaimer, this is not a sermon about how bad culture is because that's just simply not true. We engage with culture all the time. We make culture all the time. We participate in culture all the time. And we also have a responsibility to notice the things that our culture is, um, is kind of shaping within us without us even knowing about it. Because sometimes even good things can have a shadow side. The church at Corinth um, noticed it was something about, I mean, the church at Corinth, uh, there was super competitive and that competition wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but at Corinth, it became ruthless. And at Corinth, politics, which aren't necessarily a bad thing, in their culture became toxic. Uh, the privilege and the status of wealth, which is not a bad thing, it's used to serve others and to further God's purposes, but in their culture and in their community, it turned inward and became an obsession. And the idolatry itself, always problematic, gave way to sexual license and practices that continue to enslave some of the members of the house churches. The culture that it shaped them unknowingly for years had in many ways made it harder for them to love. In that way, I think we, even in our own context, are in familiar company because our own culture sometimes makes it harder for us to love God and others and one another our partisan politics, our addiction to busyness and workaholism, our competition and envy, and our, even our own resume building for ourselves and our kids. In a lot of ways, we're just like the Corinthians who find it harder to love God and one another. So the Corinthians find it harder to love, but they're also pretty hard to love people. In fact, Paul says as much in his poem, in verses four through seven, he says, love is patient and kind in this beautiful, beautiful litany. And the power of these words, the power of these words points to the reality, the reality that sometimes it's actually very hard to do the very things that Paul is saying to them. That love is patient seems to point to the reality that sometimes people will grate us and exasperate us. That Paul has to say that love is kind seems to imply that there are people who are sometimes mean and snippy to us. That love does not envy seems to imply that there are people who get the very things that we long for and pray for. That love doesn't boast seems to imply that sometimes our wins will feel like losses to the people in our lives. That love does not insist on its own way seems to imply that sometimes we forego getting what we want for the sake of others. That love is not arrogant and that Paul has to remind us of that seems to imply that despite our status or our wealth, we're still to consider others as much as and sometimes more than we consider ourselves. 
that Paul has to remind us that love is not rude seems to imply that despite there being days when our own world seems to be caving in, we still can't take it out on other people. That Paul has to remind us that love is not irritable seems to imply that people are going to talk to us before we've had lunch or before we've had coffee or when we've worked a 12-hour shift or we've stayed up all night with a sick child. That love is not resentful seems to imply that sometimes people will do things that hurt us and we'll have to figure out how to forgive them even when they're not sorry. That love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but only in the truth seems to imply that sometimes we have to have hard conversations with our friends and they with us. People are hard to love. Paul says people are hard to love. And if the New Testament letters are any indication, and particularly 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Christian people are sometimes even harder to love. Here's what I mean. Back in April, I went to visit some friends in Providence and this group of friends, um, they, um, over the course of like a dozen years, they have gathered together every week um, in someone's home for pizza. Uh, we all kind of worked at the same place, but with a couple exceptions, people worked in local schools or at another school down the road. Um, and most of them went to the same Catholic parish, but those of us who were in the group who were Protestant um, went to different churches in the area. Um, so a really, really rich community of people who live together, who work together, and who hold each other accountable in some really, really beautiful ways, powerful ways. And two of my favorite people within this group are probably the most awkward quirky people I've ever met in my life. They're also two of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my entire life. And somehow they found each other and they married each other, which made for even more awkward. <laughs> and one of my favorite stories about these two, um, it was actually a lunch gathering on a Friday afternoon where a number of us in that community would get together and we would read something and discuss it together. I think we were reading Calvin's Institutes together. Um, and I got to the room where we were having lunch and I, the only people in the room were these two people, this awkward couple. And so I sat down, was chatting with him, and then in walks one of the most brilliant theologians in the country who was a visiting scholar on our campus for that year. And uh, he joked with me that the seat next to me was for, I call him my work dad, he's like my mentor, he and his wife. And, um, and so he left the seat for him, and then we, we kind of engaged in small talk. But before he could even sit down, I whip out my cell phone and I start texting my work dad, and I go, hey, I'm in a room with, insert characters, you need to get here ASAP. Uh, <laughs> this is going to get super awkward and I don't know how to handle it. <laughs> and sure enough, before I could hit send, I uh, started to hear this clicking sound. Click, 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 click. And eventually I look over like the edge of my glasses and I notice that the wife is clipping her fingernails at the lunch table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the feel right here. <laughs> and so I... <laughs> I can't even look at the person next to me like who's like staring in horror and disgust. And so I like start texting my work dad again, like hurry up and get yourself into the room. And eventually everybody arrives and we, we have lunch together. Uh, now, here's the thing. Maybe you are not the kind of person who clips your fingernails at the lunch table. Uh, maybe you're the kind of person who like people can hear the saliva in your mouth when you chew. Uh, or, or maybe you're the person who slurps your coffee, not pointing to anyone in the room, but you know who you are. Uh, <laughs> 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 the temperature of the coffee is not grounds to slurp it. Uh, maybe you're the friend who corrects everyone's grammar. Uh, we all have that thing that makes us a bit hard to love. We all have those things that are just like a little bit awkward about us. Um, but not just the things that make us awkward and quirky. Um, sometimes the things that actually hurt other people, um, things that have a negative impact on ourselves and other people, the more gruesome habits that we don't love to talk about, that we don't joke about. Uh, there are tons of things that make people hard to love. And not just in a funny or quirky way, not just in a merely moral way, but in a spiritual, existential sort of way. Because the chief problem in Corinth isn't just that their culture has inculcated perhaps some bad habits and values and dispositions within them that make it harder for them to love God and others. And it's not just that there are sometimes people who are hard to love because of their awkward or annoying or sometimes gruesome character traits themselves. It's that they've, Paul says, have lost sight of the sheer magnitude of the triune God's love for them and their responsibilities as bearers of God's love to one another. This is precisely what Paul came to proclaim to them, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
Not with the kind of rhetoric that would win the Isthmian games, he says. Not with the kind of competitive boasting and self-promotion that they're accustomed to from other leaders, including the super apostles. Not with the kind of wealth and status that commands the company of philosophers and politicians. But with the pure proclamation of the mystery of God, Paul says, which is, quite simply, Jesus Christ crucified, he says. With fear and trembling, Paul proclaimed the mystery of God's cross-shaped love for them. This is the heart of Paul's message to the church at, church at Corinth, the cross-shaped love of God for them and through them. It is the cross-shaped love of the Father who, seeing the very worst of our sin and brokenness, still loved us and chose us before the foundations of the world. It is the cross-shaped love of the Son that, even as we mocked him, goes to the cross in our stead and wipes the slate clean with his own blood. It is the cross-shaped love of the Spirit who, even as we resist and grow apathetic and maybe even cynical in our own faith, patiently cleanses and transforms and enables us then to become bearers of God's cross-shaped love in, through, and around us. In each of the conflicts in First and Second Corinthians, you'll notice as you read it this week, you see Paul inviting them to see everything and everyone, and even Paul himself through the lens of Christ's death and resurrection. And in doing so, they too will learn how to die to themselves for the sake of God and one another. The lawsuits, the food sacrifice to idols, the sexual immorality, the divisions over their favorite leaders, and even their thumbing their noses at Paul. All of it becomes an opportunity, an invitation, if you will, to embody the cross-shaped love of Christ toward God and one another. Anything less than that cross-shaped love, Paul says, is mere infatuation, it's saccharine, it's sentimentality. And even worse, because it's turned in on itself and only focused on the self, it always drives toward more alienation and division. Paul invites the church at Corinth and us to see everything, including their conflicts, through the lens of the triune God's cross-shaped love for, in, and through them. Faith, hope, and love, these three abide, Paul says. But the greatest of these is love. And because love never ends, Paul says, because Paul, uh, love never ends, he says, when faith gives way to the sight that beholds the face of God, and when hope gives way to the fulfilled promise of salvation at last, it is our love for God and for one another and for our neighbors and even the enemies who are bowing the knee before Christ that will remain and persist into eternity. As Reverend Ken Erich said yesterday during Roger Roll's funeral service, all of life is practice for eternity. Here's what I mean. I've been reading a ton of reports and articles about alienation and loneliness in America. And one of the studies I saw recently said that loneliness is akin to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. 15. Uh, when weak social connection is worse for us than smoking, uh, than high blood pressure, than obesity, um, yeah, I, I, through those with strong social connections, on the other hand, uh, increased lifespan, uh, stronger immune system, biology, theology, not the same thing. So all I'll say with the immune system is that there's something about genes and inflammation and immune function and loneliness that runs together. Uh, <laughs> also, uh, recovering faster from disease when you have stronger social connection, at lower risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide, uh, longer uh, leads to a decrease in antisocial and violent behavior. If you're catching what I mean here, essentially loneliness, isolation, and alienation quite literally crushes our souls. And I think it is the cross-shaped love of Christ for, in, and through us that serves as the perfect antidote to that. But this isn't just a psychological or a sociological fact. One of my favorite books this season is written by a guy named Yosef Pieper. Uh, um, he writes a book called Faith, Hope, and Love. And when I say that I like, uh, find this book incredibly meaningful and compelling, which is code for I ugly cry every time I read it. Uh, it's a really, really, it says a lot because I don't cry often, but it's a really, really uh, meaningful book. I don't agree with everything that he says, but, um, but he says something really interesting about love. Uh, in his sections on love, he draws the reader's attention back to Genesis chapters one and two. Uh, in Genesis chapters one and two, God creates all of the things, including humanity. 
And he says that humanity is not, like, like God's project of, like, crafting humans isn't God making some, like, human meat puppet or human meat product, right? Like, that's not what's happening. Like, God is making a person. God is making persons, and God continues this act of making persons. Um, But more than merely uh, making persons, God pronounces by his fashioning of us with his own hands, um, his goodness, this pronouncement of goodness over us, um, our very existence, our very existence, Peter says, quite literally depends on us being wanted and loved by our triune God. A triune God who, as he knits us together in our mother's womb, sings over us, it is good, it is very good that you exist. As the data in human development studies seem to confirm, human beings are fragile and frail and really finite. And what we need more than anything is to feel that our existence is justified and affirmed somehow. And we find the ground of our existence in God's pronouncement over us. It is very good, very good that you exist. And as bearers of God's cross-shaped love toward one another, we have the privilege and the responsibility to echo this pronouncement to one another in word and deed. Peeper says it this way, It is God who, in the act of creation, anticipated all conceivable human love and said to us, I will you to be, it is good, very good, that you exist. And he has already infused everything that human beings can love and affirm about us, goodness along with existence. And that means that within each human person resides lovability and affirmability. Human love, therefore, is by its nature and must inevitably be always an imitation, a kind of repetition, an echo of this perfected and in the exact sense of the word creative love of God. What matters to us beyond mere existence is the explicit confirmation in word and deed. It is good that you exist. How wonderful you are. In other words, what we need over and above sheer existence is to be loved by another person. There's a beautiful and dynamic interplay between divine love and human love. It is divine love that pronounces over us at our inception, at our conception, like it is very good, very good that you exist. And it is human love that follows after that and repeats that refrain in every interaction, in all of the words, in all of the deeds toward one another, echoes, repeats it, um, imitates it. It is good. It is very good that you exist. In presence of this, we've seen this ourselves. We see this in the people who are loved into a better version of themselves, or maybe the children or the grandchildren who were loved into adulthood, or maybe the new person in the church who was loved into not only fellowship with us, but fellowship with God and spiritual maturity. Or we've also seen the converse, the people who weren't loved well, and it had disastrous, disastrous consequences for their communities around them. Human love was always meant to echo God's creative love. And in absence of this echo, we internalize really, really awful mistruths about ourselves. And our very souls quite literally implode. Remember, loneliness is worse for us than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Earlier this week, I um, had the chance to talk to someone who I I don't usually interact with. Uh, My physical therapist was away, um, and so another person was subbing in for her. And as we were talking and kind of catching up and getting to know each other, um, I learned that her and her family had also moved here from um, a couple of different places, but I think um, out west most recently. And um, and she was uh, saying how hard it's been for her and her family to find another church um, since they moved here, um, and also how difficult it's been for them to connect with other people. Um, and in fact, she said that her mom had warned her about moving to Holland, uh, something about the whole, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much thing, um, however the quote goes. <laughs> um, and she's like, but mom, we're like part Dutch. <laughs> How hard could it be? <laughs> and, um, and so um, as she was talking, I you know, shared stories with her about other people who had moved here from other places and how hard it had been for them to connect with people. And then eventually they did, you know, find their, their people, they found their community. Um, but before I could get to the, and they found their people and they found their community, even just saying that other people had moved here and had had a hard time connecting with people, um, she said, you know, that makes me feel so much better. Which is to say, she was kind of thinking it was her and her family 
But there was something about them that people just suddenly in this particular place didn't like or love, that there was something about them that wasn't lovable and that wasn't affirmable, that wasn't worthy of an invitation. In absence of human beings, you and me echoing the word of the Lord spoken over us at our creation, it is good, it is very good that you exist. People wilt, they wilt before our very eyes. And there's a number of ways that that shows up physiologically, psychologically, and emotionally, which means that part of what it means to be made in the image of God, to be image bearers, is to be love bearers, people who bear the love of God to one another, helping one another along to fellowship with us, fellowship with God, and into the image of God greater and greater until we meet the Lord again. That is what we get to be. And it begins with remembering, Paul says, remembering God's cross-shaped love for us because it's in remembering that, it's in being convinced of God's cross-shaped love for us that we find the abundance that we can share with others. Even when it's inconvenient, even when our schedules don't permit, even when you've already got your top five friends, the abundance that flows from God's cross-shaped love in us also comes through us when we remember his love for us. That is practice for eternity with God and one another. Uh, and that is the practice that gives way to pure and unencumbered joy with him and one another forever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. As we contemplate the love of God, let's stand on our feet, back on our feet, and let's, uh, let's sing. Who's right? 
blessing for us this morning, friends, brothers and sisters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.